0: It seems that tales of religious or spiritual practices turning into hidden criminal activities are all too common worldwide. On January twenty fifth, nineteen eighty one, a nine year old girl's body was discovered in a housing block in Toa Payoh in Singapore. Two weeks following this grim find, a ten year old boy's body was also found in the vicinity. The orchestrator of these murders was Adrian Lim, who posed as a spiritual healer with alleged mystical abilities, deceiving many over several years. He also inflicted years of physical, sexual, mental, and financial abuse on his so-called holy wives. Today's case is startling in every sense, so brace yourself and stick with me to the end. We're going to delve into the chilling tale of Singapore's spiritual healer killings known as the Toa Payo Ritual Murders. Adrian Lim was born into modest beginnings on January 6, 1942, in the Strait Settlements, with the given name Lin Baolong. He was the eldest child in his family, and his upbringing wasn't filled with luxuries. Little is known about his family life, but it's reported that he had a quick temper, easily flying off the handle even over trivial issues. Lim didn't show much interest in formal education, and reportedly dropped out of the Anglo-Chinese school after completing what would be equivalent to the 8th grade. From then on, he hustled, doing various jobs to support himself from a young age. At one point, he served as an informant for the Internal Security Department, which gave him a good understanding of police operations. By the time he was 20, Lim had landed a job with Rediffusion Singapore, a local cable radio service. He started out fixing electrical and radio equipment, impressing his bosses enough to be promoted to bill collector, handling billing issues and customer complaints. He stuck with this job for 14 years, indicating a level of satisfaction with his work life. Despite his temper, Lim married a childhood friend in April 1967. His wife was a devout Catholic, which led him to convert to Catholicism and get baptized for their marriage. They lived frugally and managed to buy a flat in Block 12, Toapayo, and were parents of two children. Life seemed stable, but Lim yearned for something more. He was fascinated by the supernatural and mystical realms back then belief in the paranormal was much more prevalent than it is today and people often turned to spiritual figures rather than therapists or doctors for healing this culture created opportunities for spiritual healers though not all of them were sincere in their practices the role often lucrative attracted both the earnest and the exploitative Adrian Lim's interest in spiritual healing led him to carve out a role for himself in the world of mystics and shamans. He picked up his skills by observing other local healers, known as Bomos, and also learned Malay and Thai from his uncle. Lim was deeply intrigued by the Hindu goddess Kali and the Thai deity Prangang. His home was a testament to his eclectic beliefs, adorned with crosses and Christian icons, alongside statues of these deities and various religious symbols. From 1973, Lim began offering his healing services, but his practices went beyond mere deception and trickery. Although he attracted a clientele that included men and elderly individuals seeking his expertise, young women and sex workers were often his primary targets. Lim exploited the vulnerabilities of these women, who were often in desperate circumstances, with the help of his landlord, who referred them to him. Lim was adept at manipulating the desperate faith of these individuals, placed in supernatural interventions. He used foreign languages and dramatic performances to convince his clients of his spiritual connections. One of his most infamous ruses was the egg curse trick, where he would blacken a needle with soot, insert it into an egg without breaking it, and then seal the hole with powder. When cracked open during a consultation, the appearance of the blackened needle would shock the client, and Lim would claim it was a sign of a curse or malevolent energy. For male clients, he would typically demand money to lift the curse, For female clients, however, his approach was much more sinister and invasive. He offered physical rituals that involved inappropriate massages with the Frangang statue, which he claimed were part of the healing process. These sessions often escalated to sexual assault, with Lim justifying continued abuse by claiming it was necessary to preserve the woman's youth or fortune. Lim's exploitation of faith and trust not only violated his clients' well-being, but also their spiritual beliefs, under the guise of providing relief and solutions to their deepest troubles. Lim's so-called holy wives were actually women he had tricked and trapped into a brutal situation. He pushed them into sex work, pocketing all the cash for himself. These women were too scared and under his control to go to the police because of the fake spiritual power he claimed to have over them. And to think, this was all going on while his own wife and kids were living with him in the same house. One of the individuals affected by Lim's actions was Catherine Tan Chu. Throughout her childhood, Tan experienced neglect from her parents, who prioritized her brothers over her. At the tender age of 13, she was placed in a vocational center by her parents. The sole source of unwavering affection in her life was her grandmother. Tragically, her grandmother died when Tan was just 17, leaving her without her primary pillar of support. In her grief and exasperation with her family, Tan fled from her home and began working at a bar, a decision she made while still very young. Given her background, it was not surprising that Tan might suffer from psychological issues, including depression. Her coworkers took notice of her struggles and consequently referred her to a spiritual healer who happened to be Lim. When Tan was 20, she sought Lim's assistance for the first time. Lim, who was drawn to her, persuaded her to visit him frequently under the guise of helping to heal her emotional wounds, though his intentions were less than pure. Tan continued to meet with Lim regularly, which raised suspicions in Lim's wife. His wife eventually saw through his empty promises and left with their children a few days later. Lim's marriage ended in divorce in 1976, an event that appeared to leave him unfazed as he went on to legally marry Tan the following year. Tan's life with Lim was fraught with misery as he subjected her to various forms of abuse. He was verbally harsh, and his abuse extended to sexual and physical realms. Lim coerced Tan into providing adult services to other men, taking her earnings for his own support. Despite clear indications of severe depression in Tan, Lim dismissed these symptoms as the work of evil spirits. Employing his own brand of treatment, Lim frequently administered electric shocks to Tan, claiming it was either to discipline her or to cure her supposed afflictions. The most disgusting thing Lim forced Tan to do was engaging in sexual intercourse with young boys. He told her that the act would preserve her youth, beauty, and vigor. It wasn't sure if Tan actually believed Lim or if she felt forced to go along with what he wanted, but either way, she ended up doing what he asked. It was said that Lim even forced her to engage in such act with her 16-year-old young brother regularly. Another woman who got caught in Lim's web was Ho Ka Kong, a 24-year-old factory worker. Kong met Lim when her mom took her to see the sham psychic to help with some personal issues. Lim decided he wanted to keep Kong around, and started filling her head with the idea that her family was no good. He even scared her into thinking that her husband, Benson Lo Ngakwa, was planning to force her into becoming an escort. Kong, believing in Lim's so-called powers, put her trust entirely in him, and even agreed to be his holy wife in a fake wedding he put on. Meanwhile, her real husband, Lo, couldn't figure out why his wife kept going back to Lim, to the point of moving in with him. He finally decided to check out Lim's place himself and see what this healing treatment was all about. But he had no idea that this visit would bother Lim, almost as if he was a threat to Lim's sham marriage with Kong. Lim talked Lo into joining in on Kong's electric shock session, claiming it was for her benefit. But Lim intentionally cranked up the voltage on Lo, fatally electrocuting him, while Kong fainted from a much weaker shock. Lim instructed Kong to tell the police that Lo was electrocuted when he tried to switch on a faulty fan in the dark. However, her husband's death was so traumatizing to her that she was admitted to a psychiatric hospital and diagnosed with schizophrenia. After a short time, she moved back in with Lim, where the man would torture her with electric shocks. Living with Lim, aside from being a punching bag and being taken advantage of, meant that Tan and Kong had to help Lim with his practices. As Lim targeted his young female clients for sexual advances, Tan and Kong had the responsibility to convince these clients to sleep with him. Lim frequently resorted to drugging the women who consistently resisted his advances to assault them. Lucy Lau Kuo Kuang was a door-to-door saleswoman pitching beauty products. On October 19th, 1980, she dropped by Lim's place to show Tan some items. Lim, always on the lookout for his next victim, tried to trick Lau by claiming he could see a spirit following her and offered to get rid of it. But Lao wasn't buying it and turned down his offer right away. Lim then mixed two capsules of Dalmodorm, a sedative drug, into the unassuming woman's drink and assaulted her after she fell unconscious. After the assault, Lao filed a report with the police, and they arrested Lim. But Lim wasn't ready to give up. He pressured his wives, who were deeply afraid of him, to cover for him. He instructed them to tell the police that no assault took place while they were around. Lim even had the audacity to deny assaulting Lau, claiming that women were attracted to him because he was a ladies' man. The police, however, didn't fall for his story and proceeded with the investigation. Annoyed that the police were persisting, Lim racked his brain for a way to derail the investigation. He drew on his past experience as a police informant and decided to concoct a grander scheme to distract them. He staged an act of being possessed by the goddess Kali, who he claimed was furious about Lao's allegations and demanded retribution. In this feigned state, he convinced Tan and Kong that they needed to offer sacrifices of children to appease the goddess's anger. Moreover, Lim spun a tale about another deity, requiring the sacrifice of youths to fulfill his perverse cravings. Tan and Kong, still under Lim's influence, tragically began to search for children to satisfy what they believed were divine demands. After dismissing several children because of how they looked, their ethnicity, or because there were too many people around, Lim eventually selected his first murder victim. Nine-year-old Agnès Ng was outside the Church of the Risen Christ, waiting for her sister when Kong abducted her. Lim then laced her drink with sedative drugs and proceeded to assault the little girl before drowning her in the bathtub. The three then stuffed Agnes's body into a travel bag and dumped her body near the lift at Block 11. Shortly after, they started to seek another victim. This time, targeting a boy, Kong approached 10-year-old Ghazali Marzuki at a playground. The boy was visiting his grandmother with his family at Block 344 Clemente Avenue 5. Kong asked the innocent child to help her collect things from her friend's house, to which Ghazali agreed and followed her to the taxi. Like Agnes, Ghazali was drugged and tied up to the electric chair, where Lin pricked Ghazali's fingers to drink his blood. It was said that Ghazali also got electrocuted and beaten until he vomited. Lim then drowned the boy in his bathtub with the help of Tan and Kong. Lim and Tan carried the deceased boy somewhere between blocks 10 and 11, where Ghazali's body was dumped under a tree. Little did they know, Ghazali's nose was dripping blood along the way. When the police found two bodies nearby, both drowned, they got suspicious. They started checking around for any leads and soon spotted some blood drops that had come from Ghazali's nose. They tracked the blood all the way to the seventh floor of Block 12 and ended up right outside the door where the trail went cold. It was apartment 467F where Lim and his wives lived. With a search warrant in hand, the investigator and other officers knocked on Lim's door and went inside. As they looked around, they noticed the place was set up for some kind of ritualistic practice, and they spotted stains of red. Lim dismissed them as just candle wax from his rituals. But the cops weren't convinced and pressed on, so Lim switched his story, claiming it was chicken blood for his ceremonies. While searching the apartment, one officer found a piece of paper with information about Ghazali and Agnes. Lim tried to explain that Ghazali's parents had brought him over to treat his frequent nosebleeds. But as Lim nervously tried to get rid of a lock of hair hidden under the carpet, the officers caught him. They already knew about his previous assault charge and his temper didn't help his case. Lim lost it, arguing loudly with the police. Tan and Kong were also upset, realizing they were cornered. With the new evidence and their reactions, the police arrested them suspecting they were involved in the murders. In court, Lim insisted on representing himself, while Tan and Kong got lawyers. The defense didn't try to deny what happened. Instead, they focused on the trio's mental health issues. Lim was described as having a mild manic depression, evident in his extreme sexual drive. The defense argued that a sane person wouldn't leave bodies near their home. But the prosecution's mental health expert countered that Lim knew exactly what he was doing, taking advantage of vulnerable people with his tricks. Experts said Tan and Kong had mental health issues, but they debated whether they understood the full extent of Lim's deceit in crimes. Some argued that they didn't care about the abuse, while others said Lim's intimidation made them too scared to oppose him. Throughout the 41-day trial, Lim was a difficult defendant, only responding to questions that suited him and dismissing others with no comment. His statements were inconsistent, and he even claimed sole responsibility for the crimes, leaving everyone in court frustrated and doubtful of his ever-changing story. Tan and Kong were more open than Lim. They said they were scared, but also impressed by Lim, who they thought had special powers. They knew what they were doing during the murders and weren't out of their minds or anything. The court had to weigh the evidence and the mental state of the accused before reaching a verdict. On May 25, 1983, the verdict was clear. None of the accused were mentally unfit when they did what they did. Tan was seen just as bad as Lim, going along with his demands. But Kong was seen differently, more like someone who was simple, easy to fool, and still hurt by her husband's death because of Lim. Adrian Lim, Catherine Tan Mui Chu, and Ho Ka Kong were all found guilty. They got the death penalty, which was the standard for murderers then. Tan and Kong showed no reaction when they heard the verdict. Lim, though, was all smiles, thanking the judges like he'd gotten off scot-free. They tried to appeal, but no luck. As their final days came close, Tan and Kong looked to make things right, talking with nuns and priests. Kong chose to get baptized, and Tan turned to prayer. Lim waited longer before he showed any regret, and he didn't want help from religious leaders. All three to communion before the end. On November twenty-fifth, 1988, they were taken to be hanged. Tan and Kong were clearly stressed, but Lim seemed to not have a care, smiling until the end. After they were hanged, there was a quick Catholic service, and then they were cremated. Even though it was called a ritual murder, Lim later said there were no candles or a chance. He just played on people's beliefs and weaknesses to get what he wanted. It's a case that still horrifies people in Singapore, where two young lives were taken just to cover up a series of lies. That's all for today. Thanks for watching.